As you're in Acts chapter 9, Lord willing, we want to fit, complete chapter 9 hopefully this morning. Uh, let me uh, just mention this quickly, okay? Um, so tonight is our yearly thing where we gather with, um, like, most of the pastors in the county will be over at New Prospect. Um, so let me kind of clarify. Um, there's a, a speaker. I've never heard this man. I've heard of him, uh, but I've never heard him speak in any way, and so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, if you, so here's my, my announcement. If you have a home group tonight, and you're one of our seven home groups, uh, you kind of have choices here, right? Could I encourage you? This is my opinion, I guess. It's the right one, but anyway. <laughs> Could I encourage you? You go to your home group. You go to your home group. That's what you've signed up for. And if you're like, man, my home group's on Wednesday, or I did not sign up for a home group this cycle, uh, then you come join us, and you see the time periods there. You can get there at 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock uh, for the actual service, and that's just down the road from us. Uh, but that would be my two cents on that. Uh, all right. Acts chapter number nine. Uh, I don't need a lot of review because we're kind of starting a new section. So here's where we're at. The early church, God was blessing. It was growing. Um, then persecution came, particularly by a man named Saul of Tarsus. But then God saved Saul. God saved the, the great persecutor himself. And he got saved just as he was getting ready to go into the city of Damascus. God saved him. And he filled him with the Holy Spirit, and he was a very special chosen person. And so he began his ministry as an apostle inside the city of Damascus. But over a period of three years, we don't know the breakdown. Some of his ministry was in the city. But then the Lord took him out to the Nebatean Desert, kind of called Arabia at that time, very northern part of Arabia at that breakdown of the boundaries at that time. And the Lord Jesus, it appears, personally tutored him for part of that three years, and again, he ministers in the city of Damascus. Meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ. Reaching out to unbelievers, unsaved Jews in the synagogues. But after three years, he makes his way down to Jerusalem, and the church doesn't really want to accept him because he had been the great persecutor. They were thinking he was faking it. But a man named Barnabas introduced him, and finally he breaks through the resistance of actually getting into the church. He spends 15 days with Peter and some of the other leaders there in the city of Jerusalem. And they recognize, wow, this really is the man of God. And he starts a ministry there as well as he had done up in Damascus. And the same thing happened. The Jews in Damascus and now the Jews down in Jerusalem hate him and they're out to kill him. And in the temple one day he's praying and he's in a trance, according to Acts 22. And the Lord Jesus says, Saul, you need to leave. They're going to kill you if you don't. You need to leave. He argues with the Lord. But ultimately Jesus wins and the brothers and sisters in Christ uh, help him to get back to his hometown in an area that we call Turkey today in a place called Tarsus. So he goes back and he's ministering up there for six, seven, eight years. We don't know all the details, but we do know this. The Lord gave the churches in Judea and up in Galilee and in Samaria, this area that we call the geographical area of Israel. He gave the churches peace during this time because Saul has been converted. He's no longer spearheading a persecution. There's a new governor down in Judea. And there's a new emperor over the empire, and I won't go into all those details, just several things converged, that the church has a, a window of peace. And they use this time to really follow the Lord, and they're walking in the wisdom and in the fear of God, and they're really making a lot of disciples, and they're being obedient to the Great Commission. And that brings us up to verse 32. So watch this. Saul of Tarsus is kind of going to go off the scene for a little bit. He's going to make a quick cameo uh, at the end of chapter 11. But really, chapters, the end of chapter 9, chapter 10, 
11, 12, we're moving our focus kind of back. Humanly speaking, the main human being on the scene is Bryce. I thought you would be out of town. Anyway, good to see you this morning. My brain goes in weird directions. I, you kind of think two or three things at once sometimes. It is possible. Uh, anyway, where was I? I was on Bryce. All right. So now we're at a point where we're getting back to Peter for a while. So Peter's going to dominate. Humanly speaking, he's going to be the front and center, chapter 10, 11, 12. Uh, and then in chapter 13, then it's really going to be Saul called Paul for the rest of the book. But now we're looking at Peter. So we've had this conversion of Saul and the results of all that. Would you look at verse 32? Kind of have two scenes. You see two uh, points to today's message falls very neatly into two sections. They're very obvious. And by the way, this is a very practical passage. This isn't a super deep theological. I'm going to confess to you, I'm going to chase a rabbit in the first point. I'm going to, and I'm going to try to catch that thing. Okay, so we're going to take a few minutes chasing a little bit of a rabbit, pulling something from the text. You may realize what it's going to be. Look at verse number 32. Now as Peter went here and there, among them all. Them is a pronoun. What is the pronoun? Them is the churches, back from verse 31. Them is the churches of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So now as Peter went here, here and there among them all, so he's just going around. He has an itinerant ministry. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is telling the Corinthians, is it only Peter that's allowed to take a believing wife? And the church is supporting him on his ministry and apparently the other apostles and the money is being spent. So Probably here, Peter and his wife are going on ministry all around this area that we call geographical Israel. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, all the different churches, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So Lydda is, let's say, 26, 28 miles away from Jerusalem. So if you were to go up from Jerusalem and head toward the Mediterranean in your mind. So this is where Peter's at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas. Aeneas. Bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Eight years. Picture a bed in your house. You have an extra bedroom. There's a bed in your house, and in there is a man, and he's been laying there for eight years. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. I don't know this. I probably shouldn't even take the time to throw it out, but I will. Is this eight years a clue? Because we know that not long before this, Jesus himself was walking around all around Israel and people were bringing all of people that had sickness and ailments and Jesus was healing them all. Here's a man with an ailment and a paralysis for eight years. Could be, just throwing it out, we're probably somewhere around eight years since the ministry of Jesus. We know the apostles have done miracles, but primarily down in Jerusalem, well, this is away from that. Anyway, don't know, just throwing it out. Verse 34, here's this man, Aeneas, bedridden, eight years, paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The idea is, literally, he is right now healing you. As I am speaking, he is healing you. So Peter, very boldly, the apostle, said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make up your bed. And immediately, he rose. It worked. And now, our author, Luke, gives us a little summary of that miracle, what the Lord did with it. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon. Sharon is a plain. It's a plain, 10 miles wide, 50 miles long. Lydda would be in that. All the people, all the residents of Lydda and this plain of Sharon saw him. They saw Aeneas and they turned to the Lord. That doesn't mean literally, like literally every single resident. 
It's the idea, man, all across through there, the Lord was using this man's healing to cause people to turn to the Lord. Second episodes, verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa. So this is another 10 or 11 miles on further toward the coast. Actually, a seacoast town on the Mediterranean Sea. So this was in Lydda. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. She's actually called a disciple. We don't know if Aeneas is saved or not. He's just called a man. But this woman is definitely a Christian. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So she has two names. Tabitha translated means Dorcas. The idea is gazelle. That's what her name means, gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. I mean, this Peter, man, and the apostles and the Saul and the Peters and the Johns, these guys are awesome. But I want to listen, the real heartbeat of the church are those people who are just out and about Doing the Lord's work. And this is one of those women. She's just full of good works. And she's full of acts of charity. Well, in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. This is is what the Jews would do. They're going to bury the same day. I'm going to throw out a hint. I, I think this is in the morning. This is probably in the morning. She dies. She's been ill. She dies. They wash her body. They put her up in an upper room. And they need to bury her before the end of the day, but maybe this allows for people to come visit and possibly planning on what they're going to have to do at the end of the day, but they have a plan. Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, 10 or 11 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, Peter's in Lydda, they're in Joppa, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So here come these two guys, Peter, you got to come with us, and you need to hurry, hurry, Why? No doubt they probably tell him what's going on. So I forget who it was. I think it might have been Matthew Henry. I didn't write it down. But Matthew Henry pointed out that, you know, post-mortem medicus is ridiculous. Right? If somebody's been dead for hours, quick, get a doctor. They died four, five, six hours ago. Hurry. Like, yeah, too late. Post-mortem apostolus, there is hope. And so they sin. Hurry. She's still in the upper room. We haven't buried her yet. Please come. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And there she is. And now we see the rest of the scene. All the widows, here's all the widows, stood beside him weeping. Their heart broke. This woman was a great woman. This woman had helped so many of them. They were weeping and showing tunics. This is the under, what they would wear against their body. And then put maybe a cloak or other things over top of the tunics. They were weeping and showing him, Peter, these tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Look at this. She did this and that and that. And everybody's just flooding him with all this information. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body after he's prayed, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. I mean, this is confirmed. Like, all these people would know she was dead for hours. Went and got him. It's going to take hours to get there, 10 miles, 10, 11 miles. It's going to take hours for him to get back. And this is totally confirmed, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. 
Let's notice two things this morning. Number one, Peter performs a great miracle. And I'm going to kind of go ahead and tell you because uh, it's not on your handout, so I'm doing it verbally. Uh, my two points this morning, uh, they, they come from Warren Wearsby, okay? He, he points out that Peter performed a great miracle uh, in verses 32 through 35. And you'll see the second point coming as well. So Peter performed a great miracle. So a while ago I mentioned, I'm going to chase a rabbit, right? Uh, this is not the dominant part of the text, but something has come up in the text twice that we now need to address. And I understand that some of you, maybe even most of you, are, are you're already on board with this, but I know that every week there's going to be some people, and now listen, you all pay attention right here. This goes back, the truth we're going to hit goes back to the first song and the last song that we just sang, because some truths were in there that ties in with what we're about to talk about. Look at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Would you look over, if you would, verse number 41. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Neil Anderson asked the following question. I'm going to give you three quotes from Neil Anderson in this section. Pay attention. Quote, if I walked into any church in America, he doesn't mean any. He means... I just randomly walked into any church in America and asked how many perceived themselves as a sinner saved by grace. Oh, my, don't do it now. You say, I perceive myself. That's me, Brother Jeff. I'm a sinner saved by grace. He asked how many people perceived themselves as a sinner saved by grace. Almost everyone would raise their hands. But then if I asked how many people perceived themselves as saints, Few, if any, would raise their hands. Now, I hope Grace View is different than that. We very well should be different with that. Not to pick on anybody, but many, many places have been ingrained by Roman Catholic teaching that certain people are the saints. And so here he's presented this question. If I come in and said, who perceives themselves to be a sinner saved by grace? Or you raise your hand on that. How many perceive yourself to be a saint? How many would raise? He says, few, if any, would raise their hand on the saints question. But Neil Anderson says, my response would be, which is the most biblically accurate statement of who you are as a Christian? So you need to answer that. Which way? Could I, you say, I could, I could raise my hand to both of those. I got, both of those are me. But his question is, which is the most biblically accurate statement of who you are as a Christian? So he's talking to Christians. Continuing. Does the Bible refer to the believer as a sinner... Or as a saint? Did Paul address his letter to the sinners at Ephesus or to the saints? Well, that's an easy one. Would you just look at the screen? I'm going to turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to answer Anderson's question. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who's his letter addressed to? It's addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe there's a lot of saints in Ephesus, in Ephesus and, Peter, and Paul is writing his letter to those who were the great saints in the city of Ephesus. Also, I want to bring in, so that answers his. The, that letter is addressed to the saints who were in Ephesus. But now notice also on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 2. It's not just the Ephesians, it's also the Corinthians. Not on your screen, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, here's verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints 
And you're like, well, there again, maybe there was a lot of saints, or there's some saints, a few saints that are in Corinth. Nope. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it's not just, well, maybe there were some great saints in, in Ephesus or in Corinth. No, he's saying all who in every place have called upon the name of the Lord, they are the saints and they are called to be saints. Would you look at verse 2? still on the screen. What is their geographical, physical location? They are in where? Corinth. What is their spiritual location? These people he's writing to are in Christ. Very good. We've trained you well. They are in Christ. You can see the same thing in Philippians. You can see the same thing in Romans 1, Philippians 1. This is, this is the default identification of Christians in the New Testament. So you say, that's great. We're saints. What does it even mean? can begin to take this note. To be a saint is to be set apart in two ways. Pay attention right here. Watch. So if this is a category of people, we're all born in this group, and over here is this other group of people, to be a saint is to be set apart. Get this. It's to be set apart from something and set apart for something. But the setting apart is being taken from this and put into this, and what this is, is in Christ. So a believer, a Christian, is removed from this group, in this category, this place, this address, and they're placed in Christ. And so won't take long to do it here, but in Christ means that when we put our faith in him, we are placed in him so that whatever he does or experiences we, it counts as if we have done it, we are experiencing it, so that literally when he was on the cross, we are put in him, so he dies for our sins. We died in him, with him. He's buried, we're buried with him. He comes back to life, we come back to life. Our opening song this morning. I thought, would you like to know the day you're going to die? Would you like to know the actual day that you die? And I thought, well, I know the day I was born again. I'm sorry, I know the day I was born physically, January 2nd, 1970. But I also know, again, going back to our opening song, I know when I was born and when I died, and I died on the same day I was born. You say, what? No, what, 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 what? I died on the same day I was born. When Christ died on the cross and rose again because I'm in Christ by faith, God has moved me in Christ. On that day, the old me died and the new me was born all at one time. Back to Anderson. He writes the following. So again, to be a saint, what is it? It's to be set apart in two ways. It's to be set apart from sin and to be set apart for Christ, for servants to God, for service to God. And where does this all happen? It happens in Christ. This is our address. We're in Christ. And in Christ, we're separated from sin, and we're separated for the service of God. It's a two-part thing. To be a saint is to be different. Sanctified is a word used there in Corinthians chapter 1. Back to Anderson. He writes the following. So write that quickly. Because I want you to catch this. He says, quote, does this mean, this being set apart from sin, does this mean that we are sinless? What he's talking about here is, practically speaking, are Christians 
sinless, practically, by no means. Sin can continue to dwell in our bodies and make its appeal. But by virtue of the crucifixion of the old man, sin's power is broken. I need to read that again. Does this mean that we are sinless? By no means. Sin can continue to dwell in our bodies and make its appeal, but by virtue of the crucifixion of the old man. That's us dying in Christ. His death counting for us. I died then. The old me died. Listen, everybody, Christians. The old you died. If you're, if you're a Christian, a real Christian, I'm not talking about somebody that's pretending to be a Christian. If you're a real Christian, you died when Christ died. That's, that's your death day. And when he rose again from the dead, that's your actual birthday because our life is tied to his life. He writes, by virtue of the crucifixion of the old man, sin's power is broken. And he references Romans 6. You ought to dig deep into Romans 6 because he offers verse 7. Listen to verse 7. For one who has died, that's the Christian who died in Christ. Here's the theology. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Christians, how do you identify? I know the old song. I've sung it. Deanna and I have sung it as a special. And I like it. You remember the song, you know, can I add a, 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 a pull from that? But here's the, here's the ideology. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Can I tell you, the humility of that is pretty good. I'm just, me, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. There's good humility there, but the theology and the identity is not so good. It's not good. You say, why? Isn't that what we are? Sinners, just old sinners saved by grace. No. Biblically speaking, we are not. Anderson continues. I'm going to back up to touch. He says, by virtue of the crucifixion of the old man, since power is broken, we are under no obligation to serve, obey, or respond to sin. By the grace of God, I wrote out to the side, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, where he puts his Holy Spirit in us. By the grace of God, we can live as children of light. We can live as children of light. Do you understand what the law could not do? God just giving us, here's some rules. Here's a list of commandments. That doesn't help us. We can't keep that. But when God has this law of the spirit of life and where the Holy Spirit actually comes and lives inside of us and we have this new kind of life, we're this new creation, we can live according to the light. By God's grace, we can live that way. We are under no obligation to sin's power. Literally, it has no reign over us. We're not obligated to serve it, to obey it, even to respond to it. I'm talking about you, Christian. I'm going to make a statement. Have you write it down? You're going to say, man, that's a little bold, and I've thought about it, and I stand by it 100%. I believe this with all my heart. Lost people have, can I say, like almost no defense against sin? They do have a thing called a conscience, but it's hardly ever enough. It just doesn't help them win the victory over sin. You say, what's your statement? Christians only sin because, one of three things, they are ignorant of, or they have forgotten, or they refuse to believe and receive and accept the reality of their freedom from sin's power. Write it down. 
Let's talk about it just for a moment. Christians, you say, Jeff, are, are, are we then sinless? By no means. Sin can continue to still dwell in our bodies, and it still can make its appeal. But Christians only sin because they're ignorant of it, or they forget it. That's my big one. You know when I sin? is when I forget the truth that I'm talking about right now. Or when they, they're taught it, but they just don't believe it. I just don't believe that. When you don't believe what the Bible says about you, that's when you're going to fall into sin. When you forget what the Bible says about you, that's when you fall into sin. And when you've never even been taught the truth of Romans 6 and that you're saints, called to be different, called different, set apart from sin, when you don't even understand this, never been taught it, well, then you sin, commit acts of sin. So I want to ask you something. What specific sins, you know the answer to this, what specific sins call out to you and tempt you? The next time that thing calls your name, if you were to apply this truth to it, apply the truth of Romans 6, and can I add Ephesians 6, if you were to learn that theology and apply it to it, you do not have to sin. You will be victorious over it. It has no power over you. If you will remember it, not forget. I tend to forget this. I got a bad habit. I tend to forget this truth, and that's when I sin. One more from Anderson. Quote, so here's where you're going to say, okay, man, Jeff seems a little wired up today about this. This is important. Quote, the way we live our lives is determined by our perceived identity. Translation, you're going to live according to what you think you are. That's how you're going to live. Again, the way we live our lives is determined by our perceived identity moving forward. He writes, nowhere, I've added the words in the Bible, and that's my words because I, I read the context of his sentence here. Let this sink in. Nowhere in the Bible are believers referred to as sinners. Not even as sinners saved by grace. And if you're like me, your mind ran over here. Hey, what about where Paul says he's the chief of sinners? He's the foremost of sinners. Go study that out. The context of that is not Paul's attitude toward himself right now. He's saying back. He's going back and he's talking about his former life when he was a persecutor. That God saved him in that situation so that there would be hope for anyone who's ever wanting to be saved by, by the grace of God. That they can know that God really will save them no matter what they've done. Because God's already saved the foremost chief of sinners. That's him referring to the old life, not where he's at now. Let me read that sentence again. Nowhere in the Bible are believers referred to as sinners, not even a sinner saved by grace. Would you write this down? If a true Christian accepts himself as a sinner, then his core identity is sin. That's a big problem. Why? Because this is a contradiction to Scripture. If you're here this morning, you're like, well, I'm just, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Stop thinking that way. You got to say, well, does it really matter? I'll balance it out. I'll add this other thing. Maybe the Catholics were wrong. And all believers really are saints. And I'll just kind of meld the two together. You've got to change your core thought. You've got to use your imagination here. You've got to pretend. It's a stretch. If an eagle, an eagle, if you could get in its mind, if that eagle really is convinced that it's a duck, if an eagle really believes, I'm a duck, Two things are going to happen. He's never going to soar where he's capable of soaring and what he's been designed to do. He's never going to soar in the high altitudes. Why? 
because he's down struggling in the water. Now, ducks are ducks, and they have their own glory, but eagles are not ducks, and eagles don't need to be messing around. Down. They can swoop down and grab a fish from the water, but they don't need to. Like, man, I just feel different than the rest of you. It's because you are different, dude. You are not one of them. Yes, I am. I'm a duck. No, you're not. You're not a duck. You are supposed to be up there. And bless their hearts, the ducks can't go try to build nests up in the high, lofty crags of the mountains. Each has their place. If you'll give me a moment, this happened yesterday. I've had some friends through the years, as I've taught on this, disagree with me, and politely and nicely, and godly people, safe people, friends. And they get upset when I make a statement that I disagree with how some addiction ministries, some addiction ministries have their attendees introduce themselves as alcoholics. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. So let me clarify, if somebody is not a Christian and they identify themselves as that and, man, the label fits, then that's fine. I understand. You're like, why do they do that? I'm going to propose this. I'm not here to speak for them, but I'll propose this. Their point is that the propensity to alcohol is deeply in their whole person. It's deeply in their physical body. Like literally it's in their core. It's in their past, it's in their experience, it's probably in their family. So I understand that. And what they're trying to do is say, yes, this is me and I'm an alcoholic. Because of the propensity of alcohol so deep in them, and here's their thought, it's going to remain a threat. And they need to remain aware of this threat and they need to be vigilant against it. And they must never let their guard down against it. Hey, listen, on all that, we agree. We agree, absolutely. Everybody needs to understand, man, if that's your history and it's had a grip on you, you got to stay aware and you got to keep your guard up and don't ever let your guard and be vigilant against that. I totally agree with that. But it is a contradiction for a Christian to identify as an alcoholic. Why? You say, Jeff, this is semantics. No, it's not. For a Christian, a safe person to identify themselves, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, that would be like a Christian identifying themselves as a fornicator, or a homosexual, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, because at some time in their past, they've committed those sins, or because that past sin being committed still calls their name, and so I'm so-and-so, and and they identify, I'm so-and-so, a fornicator, I'm so-and-so, a liar, I'm so-and-so, a thief, I'm so-and-so, a homosexual. No, not for Christians. We must not do this. To identify as such is to deny. You say, but Jeff, hold on. This is still, that would, if you don't identify as that, you're denying a reality. No, if you identify by these labels, you're denying the greater spiritual reality that we've been made brand new creations in Christ. You're denying that. Don't ever, if you're a true Christian, don't do it yourself. Don't let some demonic force... Don't let the world around you, don't let friends, don't let family, don't let that person who refuses to forgive you of what you did a long time ago that hurt them, don't you let them label and define you by past sin. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. And that's your identity. So Christians, you say, and then by the way, if somebody's unsaved, they're probably thinking, 
This is the most arrogant bunch I've ever seen in my life. They think there's people in the church, they think they're saints. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Christians must not be prideful. Oh, we're saints. But Christians must also realize they are called to live differently from sinners around them and from the world around them. Why are we called to live differently? Because you are different. To be a saint is to be different. You are different. You say, what's the difference? Body. Soul. Spirit. All people have them. But a Christian's spirit is alive. A Christian is different because we have a relationship with God. We're different because God's very Holy Spirit literally lives inside the space of your body. You're different because sin does not have dominion over you. Unsaved person, none of those things are true. Their spirit is dead. They don't have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit of God does not live in them. And sin has dominion over them. None of those things are true of believers. Back to Acts chapter 9. So to be clear, can I hit one last thing on this? Because I don't want anybody to think, you know, because there's probably, almost certainly this is in the room. There's somebody here and you're not saved. You think you are. And so what you're hearing is, I, in spite of all my sin, I just need to block that out and just keep telling myself I'm a Christian no matter what I do. If your address where you live your life is in sin, you're not saved. If your address is I'm in Christ and yes, the old nature that is dying can still be appealed to, but I don't have to listen to it. I can get victory over it. Then you're a saved person. Sin never defines the life. I mean, by wallowing in it. You find somebody that just year after year just wallows in sin. They can say they're a Christian all day long. They need to go read 1 John chapter 1, 2, 3. Nope. You've deceived yourself. I'm talking about believers. Don't define yourself by your sin. You're defined by Christ and by God and His Word as a saint. Think that way and live differently because of it. Now back to our text, there's actually something else going on in the text. Now that we've chased those two words down, right? Woo, we went after those two words. There's a hundred and some more words. Now this is going to be really, okay. So let's just glean from verse 32 to 35. I've got kind of four thoughts in this first point, I'm going to hit them quickly. Ready? Ready? Here we go. Now, as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Grace for you. Listen, I know I wear this out, but I don't apologize. I read about a man who's bedridden for eight years, and it reminds me of it. It's simple. Don't take God's blessings for granted. Don't store up Thanksgiving for late in November. The Psalms are filled with, we give thanks to the Lord for his blessings. Romans, chapter, Romans 1 reminds me, God hates it when people are unthankful. If you can see, which I dare say is everyone here this morning, have you thanked God? I mean, like, you ought to do it. You ought to do it even right now. We're getting ready to talk about a man. You ought to thank God. God... 
Thank you that I can see. Thank you that I can hear. Thank you that I walked in here. may have struggled walking in here, but you walked in here. You're not bedridden. That's a blessing. Don't just, don't even just be thankful. Give thanks. Actually take the step of giving thanks to God for the basic blessings. If that's all we did today, learn that we're saints and man, maybe by God's grace we're not in this position or these other things that God has blessed me. Lord, thank you for this. But here we're looking at a man who's bedridden eight years because he's paralyzed. Second thought out of these four. Pay attention. Aeneas' condition is verifiable. His condition is verifiable. Eight years he's been bedridden. This is verifiable. Say, Jeff, what's your point? Where are you heading with this? So I want to be totally clear. Probably more than you think. I fully believe in God's ability to miraculously heal people in the Bible and the song, the next to the last song I think we sang. He was a healer then. I know for a fact God has the power and as he wills to do, he can and does heal people physically, miraculously. I believe in it. But I'm going to tell you, I get frustrated with some people. I get really annoyed and frustrated with some who claim to have healing power, yet their supposed healings don't ever line up or match nor are anything like the healings of the New Testament. Because what I find over and over is the healings of the New Testament involve situations where the before and the after are clearly obvious. Clearly obvious. This Aeneas fella didn't roll into town in the nighttime, spend some time in his room walking around his apartment, and then, oh, here they come, quick, to your bed, and act like he has paralysis For a few days and then suddenly Peter comes in and the whole thing knows. This is eight years. This is verifiable. People around this man like, that man can't walk. He hasn't walked in eight years. These are the kinds of miracles the New Testament describes. The apostles' ministry are just full of signs and wonders. Chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus tells the lame man at the gate. Beautiful. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he gets up. Chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that many signs and wonders were being done by the hands of the apostles. Many. Over and over. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I notice about a lot of people is in their supposed miracles, it's like almost always something internal, hidden, unseen. Take their word for it. That's not what you see in the New Testament. You say, Jeff, what about the woman with the issue of blood? I, I get that. But she could have gone to the, tw- to the multiple doctors and they would have said, oh yeah, this woman has the issue of blood. She got a lot of money from her. She was a good client. Made a lot of money from her. Never could help her. The apostles' ministry and the miraculous aspect of their ministry, there were three things that you'll find are always true of the apostles' miracles. Number one, they never collected money. There was never an expectation of money. Number two, they always pointed to Jesus as the actual healer of the person. And number three, their miracles always were used as a preparation for the gospel. 
So I want to propose to you, and I'm going to do this myself. God can do this today in very miraculous ways, and God can use people to do this. I'm just going to run it through that. If somebody's charging an admission or making money off of their healing process, nope, you lost me. If somebody's pointing to themselves and drawing all the attention to themselves, nope, you lost me. If somebody doesn't use their supposed miraculous powers as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to present the gospel and point to the Lord Jesus Christ, nope, you lost me. I'm not saying you don't have real power, but it isn't coming from the Lord and you're not using it to glorify Christ. The apostles always did these things. Next to the last thought I need to hit. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Watch this. I'm going to circle back to where we began. Because you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that whole saint thing. Yeah, that's good. A pronouncement has been made by the apostle of God over this man named Aeneas. Jesus Christ heals you. The idea being the, the text, you are being healed as I'm speaking. And it was done. Pay attention. The man is healed at the moment Peter has spoken. When he's finished his sentence, the man is healed. He's laid there for eight years. But... If he doesn't exercise faith in what Peter has done and in his words and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he just continues to lay there, then he's never going to enjoy the benefit of the miracle. He's healed, but now he needs to get up, get up, he says, and make up your bed. And the man immediately rose. The fact is, here's the reality, he has been healed, but he has to have faith to put that reality into his life or he's never going to enjoy the benefit of it. We could leave it there. Could leave that point. Yes. Man, this guy, he did. He had to believe. He actually had to get up, man. Probably took some faith. He probably thought, boy, if you're fooling and tricking, I'm going to look like a real idiot here. I could maybe get hurt. No. He got up. He believed. But let's quickly just touch our lives with this. Because I find a similar thing, and literally it goes back to how I opened this morning. God has spoken certain truths about Christians. God has spoken certain truths. These are facts and realities about Christians. They're there. They are real. But if you don't exercise faith in them as a reality, you're never going to enjoy the benefit of them. You need to spend your life saying, I want to rightly divide the word of God. And I want to learn the promises of God that God has said about me as a Christian. And I want to start living in those. You say like, Jeff, what's an example of that? Oh, victory over sin. Romans 6. If you heard that earlier, you're like, man, it was just a quick hitter point. I didn't have time to delve into it. You are, if you're like, there is, Jeff, there's this certain sin and it just keeps whipping me. And I know I'm a Christian. And I fall into it, and I get right, and I live for the Lord, and then I fall into that. Yeah. Go dig into Romans 6 and find out what God says about you in verse 7 and verse 14. And then just start living it until you take it by faith. You're never going to enjoy the full victory and the benefit of it. Here's one. Here's one. The Bible says that you as a Christian, I'm not talking to unsaved people. I'm talking to Christians in the room. You have access to God in prayer. You have it. You understand there's a lot of people in this room right now. They do not use their access to God in prayer. It's only going to benefit you when you actually... God, I'm going to get serious about this prayer thing. You said this, and so I'm going to start enjoying it and living in it. And God's going to say, I'm glad you finally came to the party. It's been there the whole time. Strength in trial. 
This is real. All of you, all of you having spiritual gifts and being called to make disciples who make disciples, not sitting on the sideline. Say, well, I just don't know. Nope, the Bible has promised you have spiritual gifts and they were given to you to serve the body of Christ. But it's only going to sit on the sideline until you actually believe it and put it in and like, hey, who can help me understand this? I don't want to just sit on the sideline anymore. There are truths that are real and we're just leaving the fruit on the tree over there. And God's like, I've told you what it is. Use it. And the last thing in this passage, would you look at verse 35? All the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him. Whoa. They turned to the Lord. Look at verse 41. Again, going to get to, we're going to hit, hit this now while we're here. Actually, verse 42. And it became known, this Tabitha being raised from the dead, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So, man, everybody in Joppa hears about what happened to Tabitha, and many believe in the Lord. Quick question, to be specific. Quick question, who is the Lord? In our text, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. It's Jesus. And then these people in, 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 in um, Joppa, they believed in the Lord. Real quick. There's, I don't have time to tear apart these verses. What does this turn to the Lord mean? Let me illustrate. Here's what turn to the Lord means. They were going this direction. And they heard about this guy Aeneas who was healed by the name of Christ. And they end up turning to the Lord Jesus. They turned away from sin to Christ. What does this whole believed in the Lord in verse number 42? It means they set their faith and belief, their trust, their dependence on Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. They put that on Him. They turned it. They believed. They received Him as Savior and Lord. So now, i got to ask you this. Pay attention. This is a little subtle. This one's just a touch subtle. We get saved by, can we all agree on this? We get saved by faith in Jesus. Is that accurate? We get saved by faith in Jesus. Yes? Yes. I've got y'all so scared to answer out loud. It's like, is it a trick question? Don't answer out loud. Not a trick question. Are we saved by putting our faith and trust in Lord Jesus? Yes. But don't answer out loud here. Actually, you can answer if you want. If I lived in that day, and I'm unsaved, and I hear that Aeneas, who I knew, I know, I, I, somehow he's in my life, and I know that he's been bedridden eight years, and I see him up walking around, and he says, that guy over there came, and he said that Jesus heals me and has healed me, and it worked, and I got up, and I know that, and it is undeniable, and I connect all the dots, and I hear that Jesus has healed Aeneas, and I believe that Jesus has healed Aeneas, Am I now saved? No. It's a very specific faith in Jesus. I could be in the city of Joppa, and I could have been in that group that saw Tabitha dead, and then watch her come out of the room, and Jesus is given the credit, and I ascribe Jesus, brought her back to life, and I believe that. That does not make me a Christian. Would you write this down? Merely believing in a miracle does not lead to salvation. Merely believing in a miracle does not lead to salvation. 
Our saving faith is faith that is in Jesus, but it's not just faith that Jesus is a miracle worker. It's a very specific kind of faith. You say, what is it? It's when we put our faith and trust in Jesus' death on the cross was for sin. It was for us. It's enough. And God says it's sufficient to pay for all our sins if we'll put our faith and trust in that. That's the specific faith in Christ. You say, Jeff, why are you bringing this out? Because what the author here, Luke, does in verse 36 and verse 42, he does something. Pay attention. Watch. He does something. That's a little subtle and and you could miss it. It sounds like all they did was saw Aeneas and now they turned to the Lord because they saw Aeneas. They see Tabitha raised from the dead. They got saved and that made them put their faith and trust. No. What is not spelled out here is what's going to happen. When we get back to Paul being front and center. He's going to go on a missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And Luke, our author of Acts, is going to give us a sample sermon of Paul in Acts 13 to the Jews. And then in Acts 17, he's going to give us a sample sermon of of Paul to Gentile unsaved people who have no relation to the synagogues. So he's going to give us a sample sermon of Saul, Paul in 13 and 17, but he's already done a sample sermon of Peter back in chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, chapter 4 of the lame, after the lame man's healed at the beautiful gate in the temple. So all that's happening here is not just the miracle save people. It's Luke saying, y'all know what I mean when they turned to the Lord and they believed in the Lord. I don't have time to tell you every detail of every sermon that these guys ever preach. I'm on a limit of how big this scroll can be and I got a lot to cover. And so he says, yep, the Lord used that. No doubt what's implied, he preached. They turn to the Lord. She comes back to life. Peter again preaches. People turn and believe in the Lord. So there's this implication. Did we already have that? Um, Yeah, we need that note uh, very quickly. Merely believing in a miracle. Would you write that quickly? And then we're heading to the second section. And surprisingly, you'll think it's more verses, but it's not as long. So whole first point, Peter performs a great miracle. And I told you, I'm stealing from Wearsby for his second point. And we'll give that up a moment, and then in a minute you'll be able to write the second point. Not only did Peter perform a great miracle, but in verses 36 to 43, let's just call it what it is, Peter performs a greater miracle. Peter performs an even greater miracle. Pause just a moment. Give y'all time. I know some of you are like me. You'd want all the blanks. And I must look. There it is. Okay. Would you look at verse 36? So that whole scene has happened. Now verse 36. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Notice she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was full of good works This woman was continuously excelling and rich in good works. Again, this is the heartbeat. These type of people are the heartbeat of the church out in the community. I want to draw your attention down to verse 41. We pulled from it earlier. Would you look at verse 41 in your Bible? After she's raised from the dead, Peter gave her his hand, raised her up, then calling the saints and widows. Did you catch something there? After she's brought back to life, Peter calls in the saints and the widows. I may be making too much of this, but I'm going to propose to you 
an idea. So here's Joppa, 10 miles away. This woman does all these many wonderful deeds. But I believe that Tabitha has a dual ministry. She has a dual kind of ministry. One kind, she has a ministry of doing charitable actions and deeds for lost people who are in need. So acts of charity for lost people, good works for lost people. But in addition to that, I believe that the hints in verse number 41, because they're saints and widows, who apparently some of these widows are not in the saints group, that tells me that this woman also had another ministry of reaching out and doing good things, acts of charity, acts of kindness for Christians, literally just flowing from a heart of love, a family kind of love. So she has two types of ministry. One, to unsaved people who are in need, needy people. We have that right here in our church. Unsaved people. They're in need. Let's help meet their needs. And she has, in addition to that, a ministry of doing good things for Christians. And can I add this? I believe whether they're in need or not, they may not even be in need. I'm helping these who are unsaved that are in need, and I'm helping my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm doing, they may not all be in need. I just, want, I just love them, and I just want to do this for them. And some of them, no doubt, are in need. Hopefully that makes sense. So the reason this point is not as long is I'm not going to tear apart Verse 37, 38. I'm going to skip down to verse 39. She got sick. She died. They washed her, put her in an upstairs room. Quick, go get. Apparently, Peter's just 10, 11 miles away. Go get him, bring him here, tell him to hurry. He actually comes. When he gets there, he goes into the upper room. I'm now down in the middle of verse 39. And what does he find? All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments. I think it was Custer, who, not the general, uh, a Bible teacher at a nearby university, who wrote a book. Y'all know I'm not a Greek grammarian. But apparently the verb in verse 39 for this showing these clothes does not mean that they all came in. A, oh, you Peter, oh, that's terrible, we've lost time. She made this for me, and look over here, and I got a whole right. No, it's a reflexive verb, which means they're showing these things to him because they're wearing them. Maybe the implication is they wouldn't have something to wear if it wasn't for this lady. She made this for me and, that, and me and me and me. And look, yeah, look, look, this is a good woman. You've got to do something here. We need her. And they're just weeping and crying. This woman did great things with her life. She had a legacy of good works. Does this sound familiar? Some of you will get this. I don't expect everybody to get it. If you were with us through Matthew, does this sound familiar? Do you remember this? There's a scene where someone is dying, and then Jesus and his disciples are told the person's already died. Don't bother coming. He goes anyway. And when he gets there, all these people are weeping and crying because the person died. And the person's body is in an upstairs room. And so Jesus goes in the upstairs room, but he makes everybody else leave. He only takes himself, Peter, James, and John. And then he goes up there, and he says this prayer to, to God. And he touches the body, and he ends up saying this pronouncement. And what he says in that setting is, Talitha Kumai. Talitha Kumai. Little girl, arise. Do y'all remember whose daughter that was? Starts with a J. Jairus' daughter. Jairus, Jairus. So there's this man. You remember that scene? 
So Jesus is in an area. Here comes Jairus. Quick, you've got to come help my daughter. She's dying, okay? And they head that way. While Jesus is headed that way to go help the dying daughter, this woman who has an issue of blood touches him of his garment. He stops, figures out who it was. That whole miracle took place. And then they come up and say, don't even bother coming. She's dead. Jesus comes anyway, goes there. There's weepers and mourners and all these people. And he clears them all out. And then Jesus brings her back to life. Powell notes of this, today's text, quote, the entire scene was reminiscent of that which took place when the Lord was called to the home of Jairus. Peter remembered that episode, for it can hardly be coincidental that he used words almost identical with those uttered by the Savior. Jesus says, Talitha kumai, little girl, arise. Peter ends up saying, Tabitha kumai. Apparently, I'm told in the language there, it's like the difference of one letter. Get this. Peter's put in this challenging situation. What does he do? I'm just going to do what Jesus did. <laughs> Y'all got to get out of here. Y'all got to go. What did he say? What did he say? Oh, yeah. Little girl arrives. I'm going to not call her little girl. Tabitha's apparently a little older. And he does the same thing. When in doubt, just do what Jesus did. You'll be in good, good standing. Now, quickly, this is key. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the whole resurrection. I want to focus on what led up to the resurrection. That Peter prays tells me something about him. And what he does before he prays tells me something about prayer. I should quit real quick. Why does he clear the room? In your mind, just think about that. Please, please. And off he comes, he gets to the upper room and they're, they're all, look, she did this, that, and then they're crying. You're like, man, must have been a great lady. You got to do something. What, did you bring me here to do something? Yes, please. You got to get out of here. Y'all got to go. Why does he clear the room? Would you write this down? I think there's a lesson about prayer that, and Grace, if you please listen, this is so key to us becoming the people of God that God wants us to be. Prayer is not second. Prayer is not second. It is second to nothing. This is the key. Would you write this down? There's a lesson we're learning here. Before attempting to pray, we must be like Peter and rid our area of distractions. And rid our area of anything that might be causing doubt. Get rid of it. What's going on that might be causing a distraction? Well, all these people. All these people. You're distracting me. What's causing doubt? There's a word in the text. What's causing doubt? Death? Is there another one? He's wanting to pray, but this particular thing is probably causing him, man, that's not helping me. What is it? I'm hearing it over here. Weeping. I get it. You got to go. You got to get out of here. When we are attempting to pray, you understand it takes some time to pray. You want your prayers to be effective? It's going to take some preparation. we got to get rid of distractions. we got to get rid of anything that may be causing us to doubt, like all the weeping. And in place of that, we have to fill our minds with what promotes faith. You've got to fill your mind with what promotes faith. I thought of two things as y'all are writing that. Y'all help me out. If you're getting ready to pray, and y'all have, may have more, honestly, you may have more. What promotes faith? 
I'm getting ready to pray and talk to God. I know I need to pray in faith. What promotes faith? The Bible. Do you, I have a different one actually in my devotional Bible. Do you have something like that? Do you have something like that? That you just go to and you're like, oh yeah, the Bible says that and that and that. And you just rehearse it so that you don't just try to pray and just launch into meaningless words. And like, yeah, I don't really get much out of my prayer life. Bring things in that you know are going to build faith. That's a spiritual one. Is there a practical thing that you can take? Some of you have it. I'll be honest with you. I don't have this. I have this, but I don't have this. What's another thing that if you're going to pray, you're like, you know what? This actually is useful to build my faith. What is it? A prayer journal. Bring that out. Lord, here it is again. This is a different person. You've done this before. You've done this before. And then you pray. Get your faith built up. Quickly, Peter knelt down. This is extremely revealing. Here's a very, can we call this a challenging situation? Hey, what'd you guys call me for? Well, we got a dead lady upstairs. We're hoping you can bring her back to life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You do realize other than Jesus, the last time this has been done has been at least 800 years, right? But you're the guy. Challenging situation. That Peter, when faced with a challenging situation, his immediate first reaction is to pray. Man, that tells me a lot about this guy. He regularly talks to the Lord and he depends upon it. When he didn't know what else to do, I'm going to need to pray. Y'all have got to leave. It's got to get quiet in here. I got, it's, how long did this prayer take? Oh, okay, yes, sir. We'll be, we're out. Sounds like. Is it two minutes later? Tabitha Kumai. She wakes up, helps her up. And here she is. Is it five minutes later? Is it 20 minutes later? I don't know. I lean toward this is probably a little while. Is he still up there? Something's going on. We don't, they don't know he's praying. All we know is he knelt. The great Peter. Everybody like this Peter. Let me tell you what, why Peter is Peter and why he's so great. I don't know if it was this. Or was it this? Was it here? Was it the ball? That's why he's great. This guy's great because he was great in prayer. Write it down. A key to Peter's greatness, greatness was his humility before God, his dependence upon God. You're going to have to do something here. I can't help this lady. And man, his faith is built up. It is built and then he dares to turn and tell her to arise. Only nine specific resurrections are named in the scripture. Four have to do with Jesus. One with Elijah, a widow's son. One with Elisha, another widow's son. A second with Elisha, his bones in a grave. Another man, dead man lowered down and touch, his dead body touches Elisha's bones. He comes back to life. Hundreds of years go by. Then we have Jesus with Jairus' daughter. Jesus with the widow at Nain's son. Jesus with Lazarus. Jesus himself. And now we got this scene. And later on we're going to have the Apostle Paul will also raise someone. This isn't an everyday occurrence. So here's my question for you this morning. Scale of one to five. It's my new thing. Be honest with yourself. 
You can't pick a three. You can't pick a three. Scale of one to five. Answer these questions honestly. Prayer is a part of your daily priority. Your average day, you eat, you take a shower. Whatever you do in your average day, scale of one to five, prayer, real prayer, is part of your average day. Scale of one to five, are you one or two? You're four or five. Scale of one to five, be honest. Is prayer your default when you're faced with challenging situations? Challenging situation. Is your default to get angry, get upset, turn to somebody else, could you please do this, turn to worldly counsel? Or is your default, maybe all of that, but ultimately, Lord, I need you. Scale of one to five. You're four or five, you're one or two. Listen, this one's important. Scale of one to a five, don't pick a three. Your prayers are authentic. Your prayers are authentic. Like you know you're talking to God. Are you here this morning and you say, I'm a Christian? Honestly, it's a zero. Is it a one? Is it a two? Is it a four? Is it a five? And if you're like most of us, you say, which day are we talking about? Because <laughs> it may vary. And then how faith-filled are your prayers? Scale of one to five. Don't pick a three. How full of faith are your prayers? Peter was great because his prayers were full of faith. Last verse is verse 43. He stayed, in Jop- he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. So chapter 10 is coming. Chapter 10 is important. Chapter 9 has been important. Chapter 10 is not less important. If you're finishing your notes, tanners were considered unclean by the Jews. Unclean. Ceremonially unclean. Tanners, why? Because they work with dead animals. They have to touch dead animals. Jews, if you touch a dead animal, you can be ceremonially made clean. It's going to take some time and it's going to take some steps. So tanners are doing this all the time. In fact, not the Bible, but Jewish Some Jewish tradition said that if a wife was married to a a man who had an unclean job, such as that of a tanner, then she could get a divorce. The Bible does not let you get a divorce for that reason, obviously. But that was some of their tradition. Like, man, I'm always ceremonially clean. My husband's always touching dead animals. And I want to go to the temple, and I want to worship the Lord and offer sacrifice, and I can't do it. Jeff, what's your point? You remember the scene in Jairus' house in the upstairs? And I said how Jesus reached out and touched her before she was brought to life. Jesus touched her dead body. Jesus wasn't worried about being defiled. Peter, I noticed, does not touch Tabitha's body until after she's alive. And then he reaches out his hand. But now he's spending many days in Simon the Tanner's house. God's doing something. Write it down. At Simon's house, God is preparing Peter for a brand new revelation about what he now considers to be clean. And that's going to dominate chapter 10 in multiple ways. When you've written that, I have one last line of thought for you this morning. Aeneas, bedridden eight years. Can I just tell you, I got a friend. He texts me more than anybody. He lives in Florida. And I thought about him all week. And he's some of your friend too. 
Joe. So Joe, I've thought about you. Aeneas is bedridden for eight years. I personally would not want to be bedridden eight years. But God used it. God used it to bring glory to Christ and to draw people to salvation. Tabitha, he said she got resurrected. What does that mean? She died twice. Dying once is enough for me. I wouldn't really want to die twice. I do believe the second one would surely be a lot easier. Already done it. Not that bad. In fact, you may be going like, anytime, Lord, I'm ready to come back there. I'm kind of tired. Everybody keeps asking me, what was it like? Where were you? It's all real. No wonder all the people there end up turning and believing, to, believing in the Lord. Very powerful testimony. But the bottom line, this woman had to die twice. I would not like to die twice. Can I just, honestly, just, let's just finish with a real simple exercise. If the Lord were to come and say, hey, you have a choice. Come here. You're going to be bedridden eight years, but I'm going to use it to draw people to Christ. Hey, you're going to die twice, but I'm going to use it to draw people to Christ. Would you be up for that? If God offered that, would you say, okay, Lord. Now, I'm not standing here telling you that you're going to be bedridden eight years or have to die twice. But I know that I'm looking at some people. In fact, I could tell of some situations right now that you may be wondering, God, why have you allowed this thing in my life and it's caused so much pain? Here's all I can tell you. Eternity is coming. The Lord may show you in this life why he has allowed that painful thing. He may not. But I know this. Eternity is coming and it will reveal what he was doing And it will reveal he had a great purpose in it. And I promise you, if you're faithful in it, you will be glad that it happened. You will be glad that it happened. So keep the faith. Don't quit. You're like, Jeff, it's a lot of pain. They had to go through some difficult pain. The Lord's going to redeem it. He has a reason. He hasn't lost control. And it's not because he doesn't love you. He's letting this happen in our lives because he loves us and he wants the best for us. And he's working it all out for his glory. You can count on that. His sovereignty has not had a glitch in your life. Heads about eyes closed. Be sure today, this coming week, thank God for the ability to walk and to see and to hear, to think, to speak. Just before I pray... There are these promises that are stated as facts about Christians. Are there any promises that are just lingering out there like fruit on the tree, hanging right there, ready to be picked and applied to your life for you to enjoy? Is there a promise God has spoken over you as a Christian and you're like, I'm not enjoying the benefit of that because I don't access it by faith. I'm not putting it into my life by faith. I'm not, I'm not living victoriously over sin. I'm forgetting about what's in me and my my victory. It doesn't have dominion. And I'm forgetting that. You say, Jeff, I'm not praying like I should because I'm forgetting the access that I have to the Lord. Or Jeff, I'm not, I'm not using my spiritual gifts because I, I just don't think God has really given me a spiritual gift, but I know I'm a Christian. Well, then you're leaving the fruit on the tree. You're leaving the pleasure of life. And lastly, is don't raise your hand. If you're a Christian, you're called a saint. Do you 
need to right now just tell the Lord, God, help me internally in my mind to totally overhaul the way I perceive myself. Help me to see myself in my true identity in Christ as you describe me. And then help me to live differently because I am different. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Lord, I, I, I enjoyed this text this week. But I pray you'd let it be more than something I enjoyed. Let it be something that changes me. Lord, let me have the faith like the people that sent for the apostle. Let me have the first reaction like Peter had when a challenging situation came up. Lord, let me put in my life the truth of my identity in Christ as a saint. Help me to live up to that. Lord, help me to learn the truths you've spoken as facts and reality about me and put them into my life so that I live victoriously. I can't lead a group of people if I'm not doing this myself. And so I pray that you would cause this to be a reality in my life. Help me to enjoy all the things you've given to me. You've already stated them. Help me to learn them and live by them. And then, Lord, help us all to pray. And when we do, to realize you can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You can raise people who haven't walked in eight years. You can bring back to life people that died hours ago. And you're the same God that we pray to today. So, Lord, help us to pray with expectation. In Jesus' name. Some of us have a meeting we need to go to. If you're going to Uganda, would you join us in the fellowship?